0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast and a very happy Veterans Day to all. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is my good friend, Dr. Frank Hoffman, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University. He is one of America's foremost strategists and defense thinkers, and he is the co-author along with then Lieutenant General Jim Mattis of the concept of hybrid warfare. He is also one of the leading uh, nation's leading developers of new operational concepts. He is a prolific author. He has helped influence each of the nation's defense, uh, quadrennial defense and other reviews over the past many decades helped co-found War on the Rocks, where he is a contributor, and his latest book is Mars Adapting Military Change During War. Uh, That was published in March uh, by the Naval Institute Press. He is also a former Marine Corps Reserve Infantry Officer who retired at the noble rank of Lieutenant Colonel Frank. uh, Welcome aboard. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. Happy Veterans Day and a very happy Marine Corps birthday to you as well.
1: Thank you. I I always used to think that uh, Veterans Day was a A day given to the Marine Corps to recover from their hangover on the night before.
0: That's an excellent way of thinking about it, Frank. Uh, This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Uh, Frank, thanks very much again for joining us. And before we also get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Frank, you teach, uh, among other things, strategy at NDU, and I wanted to start with, with a simple question about what is strategy, right? I mean, on the one hand, folks argue uh, that, you know, you develop a strategy and then you resource it, and then others are, well, it's a more nuanced game, right? You can put man on the moon and you would have to make strategy, uh, you know, and resource that strategy accordingly, but in general, it's, it's a balancing act. How do we need to think fundamentally about what is and what is not strategy?
1: Uh, It does get to a central challenge for us. Uh, I think you need to think about it very comprehensively and and that it begins with analysis and it begins with assumptions, uh, knowing the the context in which you're trying to operate. Um, it, It does proceed, I think, interactively into a balance of your ends, your ways, and your means. Uh, We frequently are very good at identifying things that we want as aims, and we're very good sometimes at piling money on top of that and assuming that those aims and ends and objectives are satisfied. Uh, We very rarely uh, think creatively about the ways and the linkage between the ends, ways, and means and how to think about the fundamental hypothesis of what is going to achieve the end state or the aim that we've identified. And we too often overlook the risks uh, that come along with a strategy that things that we do actually can generate risks, and things that we don't do can generate risks into you know, a strategy. Uh, I've, I've felt that uh, looking back and looking at our national strategies over time is that we've often failed to enunciate very clear assumptions are implicit beliefs and logics that are hidden in documents. Uh, We rarely think about the opponent's perspective on some of these things, and we we focus on an argument for resourcing. Uh, When I look particularly at the the new look strategy of the 1950s, you you can see President Eisenhower's hand um, in it, and I see a uh, an hypothesis about nuclear weapons in terms of cowing the Soviet Union and playing up to what he perceived to be a, a strength of the United States that we could rely upon massive retaliation and covert ops as a high and a low end way of achieving our objectives. And I, I always found that strategy to be flawed. It, it didn't it didn't build upon the strength of ours in terms of our economy, it didn't build on strength of our alliances. in fact it Kind of put just the way we we're going to use nukes to save our allies, but it's not very appealing um, to folks that say in, in Japan or particularly most of Europe. So uh, all it did was encourage an adversary who had nuclear capabilities to invest in those capabilities, and they did. And I think a more dangerous world, both in the conventional sense and in the nuclear sense, evolved from that. So that interaction, understanding the opponent, understanding ourselves, I understand why Mr. Eisenhower liked the economic competition understood the, the long range cost of of a cold war um and so he was seeking something that was you know more efficient i just, just don't think that that was the solution
0: um, you know, you're raising an important point because one of the things I think that we understood throughout most of the Cold War, and I think President Eisenhower was one of them. I think President Truman was another. That um, there was a more integrated view of all the levers of power that the United States uh, could uh, could wield. Despite your criticism of the of the New Look uh, strategy, right? It was a more integrated. What are we doing on on messaging? What are we doing on the economic side? What are we doing on the international regulatory side? There was the conventional military element of it, and then nuclear power from from your standpoint what what through you know as you look through the span of history what is you know for you a shining example of good strategy uh, that's worth emulating at a time like this uh, where we are getting into a much more competitively dynamic world uh, where technology is a, a leveler um you know and and also an, an example of bad strategy that should serve as a warning the most interesting period. I don't know if it's
1: great strategy or good strategy, but I, I was always intrigued with the Reagan administration's approach. Uh, Mr. Reagan seemed to understand the ideological element, seemed to understand the information element as he stood there in Berlin and talked to the Soviet Union to tear down this wall. He understood the uh, economic status of ourselves and our opponents. Uh, I'm not sure that the that we Invested properly in that particular period of time, but the defense buildup uh, was a significant contribution, I think, to pushing the Soviet Union over. He was willing to confront them in covert ops and in various places of the world and block their advances against allies or friends. He was willing to contest their uh, presence in places in Central America or in Africa, um, but particularly on the political, ideological, and informational front. You know, he was a, a more than a great communicator. I think he was a great strategist and the team around him, I think, helped that. Uh, and, and all of that was towards an end of, of, of a negotiation to the ending. It wasn't you know a, a defeat or a victory. He didn't, I don't think he, uh, even in his best days anticipated. He talked about winning. Uh, he talked about a theory of, of victory per se, but I think he was closer to articulating a negotiated success in which the Soviet Union would recede in the world that we wanted in terms of a, a, a liberal democratic system as the prevailing order I, I think was what he was articulating so I'm I'm, I'm in a fan of the Reagan era strategy team
0: and and what about a shining example of bad strategy that's worth studying as a cautionary tale?
1: Well again I was going back to my Eisenhower period I, I think that was a, a, a perhaps a dangerous, period um, and, and I think we induced the opponent to do all the wrong things and right. to our disadvantage, both at the strategic systems level making a very dangerous world with you know, tens of thousands of nuclear warheads and poorly controlled, at least in, probably in the Soviet Union's case, much better controlled than ours. But uh, you know eventually I think we move towards uh, arms control and better better solutions. But uh, it's the new look. It's an overemphasis on uh, science and technology uh, as, as the sole solution. It um, minimized potential investments in uh, ground and naval forces that might've been more adaptive over more contingencies. Again, one of the interesting aspects of strategy, since we're going to get much wrong, um, how adaptive and resilient the force is to the unexpected, to, to, to the, you know, the, the black swan, the gray rhino, uh, the, the things that were not anticipated and, and this is what happens with this is why you know mr gates when he was sec def um i think was focusing on the near term often very a, a little bit too much and wasn't prepared for the more adaptive uh, contingencies and crises so i think he was wrong when he said that you know we'd never go back to asia in a in a major war um we, we've done it in the past we have interests there we could do it in the future and it's closing our minds off to some of those things. Is the and over-investing in a, in a fragile, a single-purpose kind of military is a very dangerous thing to do. And that would be a, an example of a very bad strategy if we were to uh, presume that we only have to invest in high-intensity warfare, and that's all we have to do, or all we have to do is you know play in the gray zone, and if we negate the gray zone, then uh, nothing will occur. That, that kind of thinking is very dangerous.
0: Um, I, I want to uh, build uh, on that. Thanks very much, by the way, for uh, segueing us uh, to uh, to the next uh, question. Uh, because I want to get, you know, your your fingerprints have been on every single uh, national defense strategy or quadrennial defense review for many decades. You were one of the principal authors, also of of the twenty eighteen uh, national defense strategy that uh, got great acclaim. Bridge Colby was another one of those uh, who who worked uh, on it closely. Tom Earhart and a number of other leading thinkers uh, worked on the document. But I want to wind back a little bit to the point that you know about black swans. Uh, and gray rhinos, right? I mean, one of the most frustrating elements of this is that the United States you know, seems to call near Sputnik moment to a whole bunch of things that the Chinese have methodically been working on. The namesake of this program, Andy Marshall, two, more than two decades ago was talking about the kind of capabilities that the Chinese hope to field. And the Chinese were fielding it roughly at the schedule that Andy and the net assessment team thought that they would field it. The fractional orbital bombardment system is a new the vehicles that would parade through Tiananmen Square have fractional orbital bombardment system written on them, right? I mean, so, you know, to, to to a degree, we seem to sort of be surprised at stuff, the gray rhinos that we've tracked and we've been looking at and somehow hit, hits us in the head and we're sort of stunned by this. What's, what's wrong about the way that we're doing this that most meaningfully has to change from your standpoint? Because it, it's not like any of these things are surprised and yet we seem to act surprised when our adversaries do them? Well, again, I, I I think the building actually
1: understands when it is surprised or not surprised a little bit better than the public. Um, and again, because um, as with the Sputnik moment, um, there were intelligence sources that were monitoring those things and senior leaders weren't surprised a long time ago, uh, but they didn't want to reveal the sources or the access that we enjoyed uh, to decision-making you know, overseas. And we didn't want to Uh, So sometimes we act surprised even when we're not surprised. But I do take your point that we're, we, we often close our mind. We're satisfied at a pace of adaptation that we're comfortable with. Uh, We're not measuring ourselves against known practices, known investments. And at least we see evidence at parades. I don't know how often we can assess real progress in terms of quantity and fielding and, and a capability that's, you know, from the opponent's perspective, you know flawless and uh, you know, impeccably and exquisitely designed that their systems will have flaws uh, as sometimes ours do too when they're fielded. and it's the interaction between the two that will determine victory and success and maybe that's when we'll be surprised. but that's the nature of war. When one doesn't know exactly what the best of one' system and the weaknesses of one's system until it interacts in an adversarial and competitive way. Uh, and that's just the reality of human conflict. Uh, but we we can and should and I think we do in the building uh, attempt to anticipate uh, we try to forecast uh, there are folks in the intelligence business and net assessment business that do a good job of trying to assess blue versus red and even occasionally throw in a little bit of green for the allies and understand you know where folks are making progress uh, and and you know the, the team in the building Um you know, attempts to bend the arc of history and bend the arc of the service cultures to make the necessary investments and convince the Congress to fund them and that's the interaction and the triangle that uh, sometimes grinds slowly without any lubricant and makes a lot of noise uh, as we try to you know turn the ship of the Pentagon towards you know the, the next target or the next period but uh, and this is why again the The notion of competition, I think, is important uh, in in that it helps people benchmark both in time uh, and in capability uh, on on specific aspects of military conflict, the the subdivisions, the different competitions, or what Bob Work often calls regimes um, that we need to focus on.
0: I I want to get to exactly how we define it, because obviously, uh, there is a little bit of a debate in the organization about what to call this current period, right? I mean, do we call it great power competition? Do we not call it competition? I want to try to get to the specific of where you think we are geostrategically right the administration is working on its national defense strategy it's starting to brief it out to a small number uh, of folks who are uh, you know uh, uh, being uh, very quiet about it the national security strategy is under works the nuclear posture review is ongoing the indo-pacific uh, strategy is is being discussed uh, as well and and I wanted to get your sense on where you see where we are geostrategically and what you think needs to be at the core of each of these, Strategies? Well,
1: with respect to the national security strategy, um, you know, I, I, I do see the characterization of the strategic environment as one that is competitive or being contested. Um, we can argue about the ver- verbiage. Uh, I think the old verbiage of liberal international orders, rule based orders, uh, that there's some kind of you know grand global consensus on global governance and and, and adherence to some consensus is an illusion that we need to leave behind uh, just like the end of history argument um, uh, that's that's the past and we can we can let go of that intellectual mindset and framework. Uh, we can then argue about how to think about it uh, today I, I do believe it's it's more competitive and that, the distinctions we used to make between home and away, between domestic policy and foreign policy uh, are, are more fused, need to be better integrated. That's why I'm very pleased with how the Obama team's organized its National Security Council, then having uh, national security veterans like uh, Suzanne Rice in the domestic policy seat that are familiar with the operations of the NSC so that we can integrate, uh, the our, I think, our four major problems in terms of our our economic security, our human security, how we invest in our people, uh, the environmental security, and then the, the traditional uh, notion of security, which, which I would wrap together in both homeland and, and military into a, a, a broader sense of just security. But I see a Venn diagram in my mind of four national interests and four uh, components in the environment, which deals with our energy, Uh, and environmental security and the human security, our people uh, protecting the American people and advancing their interests. And then our economic security, which includes investments, includes STEM, includes uh, research and development, and then the the security, the military security. I think too often we've thought of national security purely in terms of the overseas threat, and we've just not conceived of it more holistically uh, and more integrated that uh, that these components to include the American people and their prosperity and their sense of security and sense of well-being is, is part of the national security strategy uh, I think we need to think about it a little more holistically and I'm convinced that uh, the current administration does and also understands the the interaction of our energy policy and our environmental security so I expect to see the NSS, you know, deal with that and also deal with the, the larger strategic competition and set forth a path for the departments and the agencies to advance our interests in in this more competitive era.
0: And so you reject the uh, approach, I mean, not to bring uh, Bridge into this, right, but Bridge very much has been like, we have to focus on China and the other things are unimportant, right? That was why it was so important, uh, for example, for him to get out of Iraq and Afghanistan. We've got to focus on this challenge. And there are folks who look at this as either or, right? For example, when John Kirby, uh, I think it was yesterday, said, look, climate and China are both problems, right? For, for some, that's a bit of a dog whistle, and it's like, oh, they don't care about China. But what you're saying is you actually have to be able to walk and chew gum across all of these fronts.
1: Up- right, we do. And, and, and the foundation of our power over time to deal with challenges to our interests, um, like the environment or, or China, uh, is dependent upon us generating over time um, you know our the national foundations of our power which includes our economic security includes the, the well-being of the American people and their uh, their health their prosperity their education their our preparation investment our infrastructure all these things contribute to the longer term competition uh, I have a great deal of respect for mr. Colby who did an incredible work uh, political and strategic task in, in guiding the, the NDS task force, uh, both internationally and in Washington and in the buildings. Uh, quite impressive uh, to, to watch him uh, to operate at those, at those different levels. But it is not all about China, but China is the principal threat uh, to uh, our interests and to the world we want to live into. And, and this is where I, I do have problems with the phrase A great power competition because it, what it connotes to folks uh, is that it's only about the great powers and that it kind of ends up in this you know Sino US dyad and that everybody else is irrelevant. If you're a South Korean or if you're a German or French or a NATO ally that you're just not, not part of the, the major lens or framework that uh, the United States is operating under. And, and I think that works to our disadvantage severely. And it basically negates and or negates and seeds uh, one of our stronger advantages uh, that we have over the Chinese is that you know we we have allies and friends and we are comfortable with working with allies and friends, uh, even if we occasionally stumble um, like in the AUKUS deal. But uh, you know, this, this is how to think about it in the broadest terms. And, and what is, you know was central to the thinking that, that Mr. Colby led when he was the, the deputy assistant secretary was a, a more holistic understanding of uh, both national strategy and the defense strategy and that we play a supporting role, an enabling role in different aspects of great power competition, or my preferred phrase, strategic competition, and that there are these different dimensions. You know, there is a political dimension, uh, which includes allies, to which the Pentagon you know, is a part of that political dimension. There's an information dimension to great power competition or strategic competition and how we project our our values and our interests and, you know, what we stand for and how we represent ourselves and the military through exchanges and visits and port calls and conferences and track, you know, one, two, and three exchanges, you know, does play in the information space to some sense. Uh, We're also somewhat involved in the economic aspect in terms of, uh, maintaining access to regions, and to markets, and to resources, uh, or to enforcing sanctions. Uh, that's that's a, a, an enabling and supporting role that the, the Pentagon plays, not the major role. We're also involved in the s and competition and the preservation of our industrial base uh, with rules and standards and security apparatus. But uh, the s and is something we invest in that DARPA is obviously a key part of. It's a couple billion dollars. But the most important part to the Pentagon, obviously, is the in strategic competition, is the military competition or the security competition. And central to that is deterrence. Uh, That was the centerpiece of the compete, deter and win mantra that was embedded in the 2018 NDS. Deterrence was defined as the problem uh, on page six of the classified strategy. It's a page that's entirely unclassified so that we could talk about it. The problem was defined as the deterrence of China and uh, Russia. And the solution was defined in terms of enhancing our deterrence with a more uh, rapidly innovating joint agile and lethal joint force working in a greater deal with a expanded alliance and partner network. Uh, So deterrence is the major element in the department's uh, toolkit it is uh, worthy of increased focus in this next NDS, which I expected to, to focus on deterrence. Uh, but it, it won't hopefully just be deterrence in a conventional high-end sense. Hopefully, it'll be more full-spectrum as we tried to articulate it, but apparently didn't uh, resonate. Everybody wanted to move to the right in high-intensity warfare, particularly when Mr. Esper uh, took over. But uh, there was a perspective in the Pentagon in 2017 that we had spent 15 years focused on other things that we needed to get back to that higher end deterrence. There was modernization investment gaps that had been identified that resources were being applied to. There was a perception that there was increased risk to what uh, Russia and China had had achieved uh, while we were investing in the Middle East. Uh, And I think it is appropriate for the department to focus on deterrence and to move to the higher end of the conflict spectrum and devote some time and attention to deterring other large powers.
0: Very, very briefly, do, do you think that a Talmudic debate on language becomes um, counterproductive, right? That if you try to be too nuanced, you're not communicating as clearly to your allies and partners, but as well to your own force. I mean, is there a clarity when a Frank Kendall comes out and says, it's about China, China, China. We need to be focused on it. Here is why speed is important. Let's get moving, right? There is nobody in that hall at the Air Force Association had any doubt uh, about what their leadership was calling on them to do, right? The combination of, of what uh, Secretary Kendall and uh, uh, C.Q. Brown, uh, the Air Force chief, were saying. I mean, are we at risk of getting nuanced for our own good, which was one of the big criticisms of the Obama administration and that some people harbor now, uh, when they hear about the guidance, for example, that the deputy secretary is putting out, that it's getting too nuanced for your own good?
1: Well, the the verbiage, the lexicon, you know, your mindset, your lens are very important. Um, I, I, the, the problem is, of course, you're, you're communicating to multiple audiences. You're trying to communicate to the American people, which is where Mr. Mattis seemed to focus, uh, also through their elected representatives on the Hill and trying to get resources. And Mr. Mattis Turned out to be very successful at that, getting an $80 billion increase in the 17 budget and $85 billion in the 18 budget uh, was not an easy lift, uh, but the consensus had been growing you know, on both sides of Congress to, to support something like that. Um, so, But you're talking to the Congress, you're, you're trying to lay out a, a vision, uh, you're talking to our allies, and I'm not sure that we did that very well, and you're also talking down and into the bowels of the bureaucracy about shifts, And about making choices and trade offs. And uh, I think the document that uh, Mr. Colby and I and and a team, 20 brilliant people, uh, put together something that talked better to the building than it did maybe to the external audience. Um, But I do think that talking about China, using it as a benchmark, understanding uh, where there are uh, gaps and where we're, you know, maybe just slower or behind in certain areas, whether it's AI, whether it's hypersonic missiles, uh, whether it's uh, nuclear capabilities, you know, that having that kind of benchmark, having that mindset of where are they, where are we, is there a balance, are we ahead or are we behind is a very good lens uh, to think about. Um, and so I'm, again, a fan of strategic competition. I, I like the mindset uh, that it, it brings about. Uh, it should help us focus on looking at ourselves, our uh, human capital system. Are we developing the right people? Do we have access to the best and the brightest? Uh, our institutional systems up to snuff is the acquisition system, the innovation ecosystem performing uh, with the velocity and the affordability that, that we try to impose or, or generate an argument for in 2017, 2018. I, I, I don't think we're achieving that. Are we modernizing sufficiently? Uh, are we focusing on competitions that we can't afford to lose? Uh, are we preparing for you know, the most likely and the most consequential conquests uh, in the Asia-Pacific region versus, say, over Africa or South Asia or even the Arctic? Uh, I think that's what competition gives me as a, as a mindset and a tool, uh, thinking competitively, thinking selectively, Thinking about the regimes and the competitions that, um, in a, in a iterative, interactive set vis-a-vis a, a, a you know a pacing threat, we need to think about competition perhaps in in three layers, and I think the most important one is just a, a, an understanding of the international environment. You know, we're in a contested period in which other states are challenging the rules of the road and the order and their placement in the order. They, they basically have declared uh, that that our conception of what is best in our interests is is not the world that they wanna live in. And we need to accept that. The most important aspect of competition is think about it at the institutional level. And again, our our manpower system, our acquisition system, our facing posture and alliance architecture at the institutional level is the focus of the NDS and should be the focus of thinking about competition. The part that I'm least bit interested in is is people uh, ascribing uh, everything that they want to do and calling it competition. So competition in, in Peru or competition in Africa or competition in the Arctic. Uh, the, the building needs to discipline by the assignment of mission priorities and resource allocation, uh, the things that it wants to do to be competitive. That's the most important part. And then what activities one does to execute that competition uh, can be you know, defined by the, by the Secretary and the Depsec Def, I think, in a disciplined manner.
0: But is it problematic where the White House is using language and the Pentagon starts to use different language on its own? I mean, aren't they sort of in charge of this ultimately, right? I mean, if they're using strategic competition language, doesn't that make it really easy for the department to just sort of follow along and using the same language? And for God's sakes, the president talks about, you know, um, the American, the U.S. and allied obligation to Taiwan, right?
1: Right. To fight for Taiwan. And the president defines that in terms of, I think, in terms of competition. He talks about even even going to extreme competition, which is uh, getting a little edge into the the conflict. Uh, Jake Sullivan's spoken very clearly about uh, strategic competition. Mr. Blinken has talked about strategic competition. Uh, I think they've embraced the idea of, of, again, the international order and the the contested uh, counteractions that Russia and China are placing on that order. And I don't think the Pentagon can divorce itself from the NSS or from the language of the president. And, uh, and we couldn't four years ago. Uh, we, we struck a theme uh, across the government about competition back then. And the, the chapter uh, three in the last NSS talked about competitive economics, competitive diplomacy, and a more competitive defense department. Uh, so if, if this NSS picks up the same language that Mr. Sullivan, Secretary Blinken, and the president have used in the past that the Pentagon will be part of that. But again, deterrence, I still think, will be center of the military competition.
0: How do so one of the things which has been brilliant about the way China has been doing this is, you know, we were distracted in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, They focused on uh, capability again. I mean, they're not doing anything that we have not been tracking or did not know that they were doing. It's just we seem to be surprised at the scale and the mass of it. And one of the things that they cleverly did was, hey, let's field all of this conventional capability that would negate a lot of uh, the advantages U.S. warfighting uh, U.S. forces have, especially on the in the Western Pacific. At the and uh, even understanding, okay, well, we're likely to go more toward a nuclear capability, right? So as a consequence, they develop a uh, significant increase in their nuclear capabilities, recognizing that that's the lever we're likely to pull where we have a strategic advantage. Um, and, as, and one of the things you and I have talked about for a very long period of time is a, a need at some point to change the game, right? That which we are doing is not going to work. In fact, people talk about winning and nobody's dis- defined winning, right? That was a problem in Iraq and Afghanistan. What was winning, right? And it's hard to imagine that we will take Beijing as we did Tokyo and Berlin uh, in, in, in World War II, right? How do we need to change the game? Because doing more of what it is that we are doing in this hybrid context that we're in, right, where great powers are behaving in a hybrid fashion, how do we need to change the game, Frank? Because we're we're not we're just not getting there. I mean, we're talking about the problem, we're admiring the problem, we may know about the capabilities they're fielding, But if I was a Martian and looking at what the United States is doing and come back on four-year intervals, it would be very hard for me to be able to tell like, oh, well, they're developing a lot of capability that's countering these guys. In fact, our deterrence decreases should the other guy calculate, holy crap, I'm doing all this stuff and they're not even moving a needle, right? How do we need to be thinking differently about what it is that we actually do so that we maintain this ability to deter an authoritarian regime that could miscalculate? Well, this is the the central question of the day, um, you know, we're-, we're <laughs> Which is why I'm asking you.
1: <laughs> we're in a, you know, contested, um, and again, I, I don't think many Americans appreciate it. I don't think they appreciate the scale. This is why I like Graham Allison's book, even though most people focused on the Greek history and not on the, on the major message. Um, you know, the, the scale of the Chinese uh, population, the scale of its economic growth, uh, the nature of its regime, uh, the nature of its interests and its strategy uh, presents conditions that over the long-term you know, are inimical uh, as the NSS, so eloquently put it, uh, to our interests. You know, That's not the world we want to live in in which the Chinese surveillance system, autocratic states, their interpretation about how economies operate uh, and their degree of influence uh, and uh, corruption of uh, politics and economic order is the prevailing system. I think they made it very clear in Anchorage uh, about their ambitions, and I think they're proceeding at pace. And for a number of years, folks like Aaron Freeberg and Graham Allison have tried to point out what was going on, and uh, most of us were just making illusory assumptions that sacrifices and trade-offs and change, you know, were not necessary that the Chinese would eventually bend and become what we wanted them to be. And and that's just not been happening. So now we've had this this great awakening. We're still in the in the argumentation about the, the verbiage that gets us there. I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic, I think perhaps more than you, about uh, the structural context over the longer haul. If we get a longer haul, I remember four years ago that some people were arguing whether China wanted to be a great power, but actually make decisive steps vis-a-vis Taiwan and South China Sea and others in 2049 or 2035. And I was sort of in the 2035 camp. though well, it was a longer term, thing, but not out to 2049. I don't think anyone in China really is going to wait that long for a centennial event. But now the debate in Washington, D.C. is uh, China's ambitions in a more near-term sense and there's discussions about uh, whether China's declining, whether China's going to become more reckless. Uh, I don't see it as declining, but I do see a lot of weaknesses in China's structural components vis-a-vis ours. It lends me to be more optimistic. I'm, I'm optimistic about geography. I'm optimistic about our allies. Uh, I'm, ap- I'm optimistic about the American economy over the long haul, uh, particularly in the energy area vis-a-vis China and us. I'm still Optimistic about our innovation system, um, and and looking at how Xi is now constraining and limiting and politicizing his own innovation ecosystem, right. and we still have the structural advantage in, in demographics and, and human capital and educational systems. Again, you know, nothing to be pessimistic about. But this this issue of timelines is coming up. Um, much more in the in discussion in Washington DC right now. And Admiral Davidson started this in his testimony before he left office out in indo where he basically said that China had a 2026 plan uh, which puts him at odds with you know, some folks in, in the Pentagon who who do think that China does have long-term ambitions and, and will operate and act right. on those if we do not deter them. And if we do not make changes Uh, I'm still in the 2035 camp, but I also note that I'm four years past where I was four years ago, and I don't see the rate of change in the building that I was hoping for. And I might have been unrealistic about the pace, but I do remember the last sentence of the classified NDS, which is also unclassified page, uh, again, for public consumption, about the scale and the sense of urgency that was required to implement the strategy. And. That scale and urgency has not been present, or at least not visibly present, um, in these last four years.
0: Uh, Let me, um, and I should point out, right, uh, the point you're making, and we've discussed on this program uh, many times, is the Hal Brand's Mike Beckley point. That actually, China's becoming more dangerous. And that's been one of my theses for a long time uh, is, you know, they become more dangerous the more unstable they become, the more authoritarian they become. There's, you know, it, 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 it starts to become problematic. And obviously, that's a capability China's trying to harness. And I should point out for our audience that uh, Dr. Graham Allison joined us for uh, one of these conversations just um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, let me uh, take you, Frank, to the notion of innovation right? Um, We are at a fascinating uh, time uh, in terms of uh, capability development, but the cultural piece of this is uh, critical, right? So this isn't just the technological piece. It's a risk, uh, your willingness to accept risk, your willingness to thoughtfully mitigate uh, risk, uh, while at the same time, moving more quickly. And, and uh, the, your book uh, is uh, a, a longer exposition on your King's College uh, PhD uh, dissertation. How do we need to be thinking about innovation? And what are the things that the department can meaningfully do to be able to accelerate it? Because as you've put it, we're not moving as quickly as we need to. There's a lot of highly classified capability development that we are doing. But even those involved in this system are saying that it's not enough and it's not fast enough and the nation has proven repeatedly through its history and particularly in the world war II area but certainly uh, era but certainly throughout the cold war that we were able to really move fast i mean i, I want to point out that you know it, it, during the civil war the monitor the game changing warship was built in like 90 days by john erickson right and and rushed into combat so we can we can do game changing things fast how do we need to be th- how do we need to be moving these levers and what does history teach us so that we can do a better job at this?
1: Well, this gets uh, maybe the second most important thing for the Pentagon, is just you know, the velocity of innovation. Uh, I've been advising folks around the building of late, given my experience of four years ago, that four years ago we considered um, a more centralized direction, a more uh, focused allocation of resources to specific tasks, rather than just teleservice. service you know, here's an operational challenge, get on with it. And, you know, here's more money. Uh, you know, perhaps we explored uh, management arrangements in which either a service lead or a cross-functional team would be created for each of the challenges. And that the department at the department level, um, would run things. And I, I, I look at things like the Jake, uh, the joint AI center, perhaps as a, a prototype. But um, in many of the things that Mr. Roper was doing in the Strategic Capabilities Office, we were contemplating creating cross-functional teams as a management technique to have OSD drive the change. So we would empower a cross-functional team of civilian and military experts. We would charter them. We would give them the, the total obligational authority for a specific problem set. Uh, and they would, they would work that problem. Uh, that would take Title 10 authorities away from the services per se for these specific teams. And one could be kind of selective like we've been with Joint AI, just pick two or three of these kind of cross-functional teams as a management initiative. Um, Mr. Gates in his books, uh, who has a great deal of executive cabinet level time, uh, felt that the only progress he had ever made in large-scale change in In his time with CIA and with the Defense Department was was via these cross-functional teams. So if you would identify the top couple challenges operationally that need work, uh, as we did in the last NDS, uh, if you would create teams and empower them, um, reward them and incentivize these individuals to solve those problems, and then provide the resources for the different agencies to include the services that would then implement uh, those team recommendations. You you might get past some of the bureaucracy, get past some of the cultural inhibitions and some of the authority issues in, in some way, but that's a different way of thinking about it. But I, I've encouraged the Pentagon to be more impatient and more directive. Um, I've you know, picked up the Admiral Davidson's concerns. I've watched, uh, you know, I've, I've seen the brands and Beckley argument, which is surprising me, where, where Beckley was a number of years ago in his book, Unrivaled. He thought we had many structural advantages and that, that we faced no threats, but I think his perspective has changed now, and I, th- I find that fascinating. Um, but uh, those are the things we might, might need to consider, and the, the second part, in addition to the management teams in a, a more departmental-directed way, uh, we might consider um Directing the formation of experimental units and incentivizing the services to create, uh, whether they're warbot companies, whether it's a UUV squadron, um, whether it's a, a UCAV uh, option, you know, using using some existing prototypes to field experimental units uh, to push things along to generate greater velocity of innovation by putting some of these tools in the hands of uh, sailors, marines, airmen, uh, and, and promoting the changes that are necessary by actually operating these systems in experimental units and, and games and in simulations and, and perhaps in their interactions with the fleet or uh, with our allies. That would be another technique perhaps to, to move things along
0: let me um we're going into a little bit of lightning round because we've got less than uh 10 minutes left but i want to ask you this question about the services that get it and the services they don't as you know washington is full of debate um there is a sense that uh cq brown uh, and and the air force and uh general Berger, the commandant of the marine corps happy birthday sir uh, you know, are guys who get it, they're willing to take risk now to do risk for the future and better prepare for the future. Uh, there is a sense that the army, which has an ingrained conservatism to it, um, maybe getting to slightly the wrong answer, but for the right reasons, right, that they are doing the methodical work, they are the force that's going to have to fight everywhere, ultimately. And so we're going to need, it's going to need Arctic capability, jungle capability, Pacific Island capability, Mideast full the gap capability, right? I mean so that colors how you think about a situation where there is an increasing concern that the Navy actually doesn't get it at all uh, and and that one of the most important services certainly for uh, a Pacific scenario may be actually badly aligned uh, culturally, equipment wise uh, for, for the ta- for the task at hand. How do you see this debate, Frank, from from where you sit? Um, who's getting it right? who's getting it not right? And what's the smartest way to mitigate risk again? Because the biggest challenge, right? It has, there's a gravitational pull. It's about China, China, China. We have to focus about China, China, China. Whereas Russia still remains dangerous. Terrorism is still, you know what I mean? Global instability is another issue. How how do you sense where we are and the relative approaches of the services and whether they're getting it right.
1: Yeah, well, I think the Navy is the most advantaged by the focus on China and the nature of the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and you should have the easiest time in, in the sense of the problem. Uh, the harder part is the adaptation and the solutions. You know, the, um, the focus on the carrier, big investment, questionable utility in the, in the close-in fights, uh, the short-range aircraft that we've currently been buying for a, for a different era uh, that have wonderful, stealthy, avionic capabilities but uh, are disadvantaged at range. Uh, you know, the, the, the cultural shifts to get off that model to go to a different model uh, are hardest for the Navy and the capital-intensive nature of building navies. Uh, I also think that the, the CNO and the SECNAV are disadvantaged by, you know, the burden of proof, necessary to uh, think about um, a more distributed, smaller fleet that has more missiles, more SM6, more LASRAM, uh, more firepower, but in a more distributed sense, more undersea capability, uh, greater connectivity to space. Uh, it, it's the biggest paradigm shift uh, that's necessary and the, the Building of the proof, the, the the command and control of say undersea warfare in this environment, the man-machine teaming for UUVs and submarines, the man-machine teaming for UCAVs and loyal wingmen on on uh, power projection from the sea and sea control. Um, you know what what does the Navy look like, and and can you operate that Navy reliably from a command and control perspective in a contested Information and in cyber and space environment. I think the burden of proof is very difficult for the CNO, and I think he's proceeding a pace uh, at, at trying to deal with both the cultural and the technological change. But perhaps experimental units, uh, you know, would help and uh, a better explanation of what he's doing. But I do see the experiments. I do see visions. Um, to move in the right direction from the Navy, I do support what the Commandant of the Marine Corps has been been doing. Uh, still, quite a degree of resistance. There are still people who want to refight uh, Desert Storm or re- want to refight 1950. I see the shifts that the Commandant has made so far as being consistent with changes in warfare in terms of precision, range, distribution, uh, complexities in command and control, and signature management and the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, range and a variety of munitions contributing to the naval fight. Uh, I probably wouldn't have gone as far in some of the trade-offs as, as he did, but he, he did take the most risk, got rid of armor, got rid of a lot of tube artillery, perhaps a little bit more than I would be comfortable with, uh, but I would have a mix uh, as, as he's going towards. And there's places where he's not had the evidence. He's not been able to satisfy his own burden of proofs of something. So he's stopped doing something and exploring options, how to reconfigure um, the regiments for littoral operations. They're still exploring those things because the evidence and the debate has not been resolved. So where there were clear indicators, he's moved forward aggressively. It should be given credit for that. And where the evidence and the burden of proof is still to be met, he's still exploring. And I think all the service chiefs are trying to deal with that, with uh, their internal and external cultures and, and their you know their stakeholders and and make those changes uh, the army is perhaps maybe moving the slowest it's it's the biggest there's many pieces to that um, I, I, I do think that um, it's not the, the top priority for the future for me uh, so I'm not as concerned about uh, say the Arctic as you are Bago. Uh, but uh, the, the Army does have a wide mission range. They do have a lot of components. They do have a lot of modernization needs. Um, you know, that they've made some of the right investments in terms of rocketry, uh, maintaining the force. I'm, I'm still waiting for more experiments. I know they just have an experiment going on this week on the, on the integration piece right. uh, and, and making some progress on convergence. And that's important. Um, There's also some, some investments in what land warfare and, and holding terrain means in the 21st century, uh, and I, I'm, it's definitely a, a priority in terms of supporting some of our allies in, in Korea and in Europe. Uh, it's just not as important, perhaps, as the as the China problem. But again, we need to think about China over the long term, not as a you know West PAC problem. Uh, China will be a global power. We will our interests will interact uh, in, a, in a variety of places. But I, I still uh, focus on the naval, marine, and
0: aerospace contributions. You know, for that, for that fight. Um, let me uh, bring you uh, around, and, and, and this is my last question. You were, you were among the architects of the counterinsurgency strategy um, that led to the Iraq uh, surge. Um, you know, David Petraeus was part of it. Jim Mattis was part of it. John Noggle was part of it. H.R. Uh, McMaster was part of it. You were part of it. There were others as well who contributed uh, to uh, the effort. But from your standpoint, what were the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan, Um, that you think are applicable to where we are in the competition, both, you know, in in terms of just broad lessons learned, there are some things we did well, and we did fast, we drew off of the industrial bases of our allies and partners, for example, to quickly address urgent operational requirements, Uh, we were able to shift the, you know, move away from a failing strategy, although we tend not to acknowledge that there was a lot of bribery involved in this also, right, we have a tendency of thinking about the surge, and not the amount of money we put in people's hands, for example, to not shoot at us, right? Um, what, what from your standpoint, because there were folks who are looking at the last 20 years and saying that this has been a complete and utter bust. How do you see this?
1: History is gonna look back on it and just really scratch their heads. I, I, I think we learned that state building and interventions are more costly than we had imagined that we're not as effective uh, as we could be, that we didn't understand both ourselves and and the adversaries. We didn't understand their culture. We didn't understand their own limitations. I don't don't think we knew how to create the incentives um, for the sort of political consensus building that's required to hold a society together, particularly I'm talking about Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. um, where we have a trillion dollars in 20 years invested for you know, what right now is probably a complete zero. Um, and again, you know, the cost in terms of human lives uh, perhaps was not as big as some of our other wars, but in terms of the investment, the time, the opportunity cost, it's, it's just really hard to question that large term expeditionary operations were very successful. I was on the, the coin manual development and worked on some pieces of it, but I'm not a, a, a fan of counterinsurgency uh, as, as we have envisioned it. I wrote critiques uh, and a red team papers about the, the approach we were taking. I, I don't think we understood um, the opposing ideology. I don't think we understood the role of uh, religion and extremism. I don't think we understood how counterinsurgency practices of the forties, fifties, and sixties uh, was not gonna be effective in the 21st century. Uh, we just didn't, didn't understand how the internet, foreign fighters, uh, religious extremism, and technology was going to interact. And uh, uh, so I wrote, wrote a piece on neoclassical counterinsurgency question uh, mark. I think we wrote doctrine and had an appreciation looking backwards too much to the Vietnam era and not looking forward enough. And so there's another lesson um, about doctrine and about concepts, you, know, you need to look for Some continuities uh, in past practices, which also suggested not mere imaging, not uh, being overly kinetic. And I think we violated all those past continuities, but not seeing the discontinuities in the future and why going lighter, longer uh, with the right incentives might have been a better way of uh, proceeding in Afghanistan.
0: Well, let me just, uh, this begs one more um, uh, question. Um, Do we, as a military organization, right, fully understand what future warfare is going to be like? Or do we suffer from historic neuralgias that may be very inaccurate? You know, I participated in an industrial mobilization um, uh, conversation, as you recall, over at uh, NDU uh, about two or three years ago. And that was just trying to channel World War II. In many respects, we come back to this idea of what is winning. Um, you know, large swathes of the U.S. population are subject to massive disinformation, um, right? To 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 the point where it is gravely interfering with the execution of the body politic in the United States, right? I mean, one of the reasons why Harlan Ullman talks about, you know, hey, the the enemy is us, right? The Chinese are are not as significant of a problem as our own political dysfunction and and what it means. From from your perspective, do we fully understand, do those in leadership positions fully understand what future war is going to look like and what it's not going to look like? A lot of this will be cyber operations, for example, but we are wholly unprepared for those Uh, cyber operations. and, And we're barely addressing the vulnerabilities that are known vulnerabilities, even though the cost of doing so, you know what I mean? The Navy would rather buy a ship than spend $5 billion a year addressing some of the cyber vulnerabilities that could actually negate the efficacy of the ships we have, right? That suggests not understanding, Frank, fundamentally how very different a future world war and a future war would look like with the Chinese. And I think Jim Stavridis deserves a lot of credit for bringing in the notion that all of, you know, that Iran and, and, and Russia are likely to get involved against us, right? This will be a world war p- potentially. Are we, th- just last question, truly last question. Are we, th- are folks thinking about this the right way? Because I know you spend an enormous amount of time thinking about what that future war looks like.
1: Yes, although the American military culture, you know, defines war, I think, in a, in a narrow sense. And I, I do think we need to open our mind to what I call the four faces of future warfare. Uh, we need to think about a broader spectrum of direct and indirect approaches that are conventional to unconventional, and that array from uh, our, our traditional mindset about what wars are uh, to some more uh, radical uh, versions. So this future Four Faces that I've been briefing about lately uh, does understand that there is a, a, a consequence to being unprepared for a conventional war. And there's still debates about how to best do that. Uh, there are proponents for, you know, precision strike Uberalis that are very high tech, very stealthy, very long range, very lethal. And then there's, you know, the, the uh, another camp with I, I think Chris Brose and Dr. TX Hamas of NDU would be in that the small, cheap and the many options Uh, constitutes conventional war, but I think we also need to open ourselves up to, you know, a wider circles, or I I use a a Venn diagram of, you know, four circles, and conventional war is just one piece of it, and we also need to understand, you know, proxy war or surrogate warfare uh, through PMCs, through militias, you know, through uh, created groups like Hezbollah uh, or other militias, you know, we need to think about that. And I see China and Russia investing a lot in private military security and the use of companies and the use of cyber warriors and perhaps ransomware uh, hackers also as, a, as surrogates to influence societies and change thinking. So I think we understand the, the proxy war challenge. And I think we understand how Iran weaponizes proxies in that space. And we need to think about that, too. Uh, But the other areas, particularly your comments on the cyber thing, I think are very appropriate. I I think we need to think about what I call societal warfare, which is attacks on the homeland using largely cyber, but maybe other forms of sabotage to get at the the critical infrastructure of a society. It's hardware. Uh, And that overlaps with something I call cognitive warfare, which is the information disinformation space in which cyber is used not to attack the hardware, but the software of society, people's minds. And there's some overlap between those two, between societal warfare and cognitive warfare is, uh, you know, the areas in which political parties, elections, unions, you know, telecommunication companies, you know, sort of the the crossover between hardware and software. And and that's the space for subversion uh, and corruption and what's normally called, you know, political warfare and that overlap. So I think we need to conceive of war in those four dimensions conventional, proxy, societal, and cognitive, and they're they're not all of equal risk. Uh, They're also clearly much greater probability of attacks in our critical infrastructure. I don't think there's a single dimension. I think I've defined eight elements in societal warfare. I don't think there's a single dimension of uh, telecommunications, energy distribution, or financial activity that's not been hacked or attacked by a, an attributed state actor in the last uh, less than 10 years. That's not been identified either a Chinese, Iranian, North Korean, or a Russian hacker. Um, some of those might be criminal, but they also might be just strategic reconnaissance and tests as well. And it, we do need to understand, I think, a, a broader conception
0: of what war is uh, in the NSS. Uh, as uh, the Russians are fond of saying, the most important uh, strategic terrain uh, in the world is the six inches between your ears. Uh, and I think that that is something that they have ma- mastered. Uh, Frank, absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, it's great uh, having you on. Would love to have you on on a much more regular basis to be able to dive deeper uh, into a whole range of uh, strategic questions. We didn't even get to your great submarine piece uh, that you wrote recently on War on the Rocks uh, and, and certainly would love to have you come back uh, for that conversation and much more. Thanks so very much, and hope you have a very uh, happy Veterans Day and that you continue uh, to recover from celebrating our great Marine Corps' birthday.
1: Thank you very much, Vago. Great to be with you and uh, to talk you know, for you on, on my own behalf. Thank you.